0: Professor Marcus, the Head of the Department, gave a wonderful welcome address. The director, my fellow Boston alum, Reverend Dr. Francis Xavier, the Secretary, Reverend Dr. Salvatore U.S.A., the Principal, Reverend Dr. A. Thomas S.J., the convener of the conference, the organizing secretary, I should say, who gave a very gracious and uh, full introduction to me, Dr. Jashan Rayapar. The other members of the organizing committee, the delegates attending this conference, the young minds, we have gathered here, the young lady who is uh, kind of emceeing this event and gave a wonderful introduction speech. All of you, uh, good morning and thank you very much for inviting me to this wonderful occasion which I am very happy to attend. One of the things that I hope defines our government, my Chief Minister, myself, every one of our actions we relate to our values we relate to the philosophy of the Dravidian movement and the uh, the motivation for us to be in public life you know at least some of us had decent circumstances and opportunities outside of politics it was not a you know kind of way to make progress personally But we come for a greater cause. We come because we believe that society should be benefited by a certain set of values. We try to create legislation, schemes, programs, fund them in a way that we think will advance society and improve the quality of life of our citizens. So from that perspective, I'm very happy to be here today for two or three reasons. Because education has always been the accelerator of progress in society. That has been true throughout history. Certainly throughout the hundred plus years of the religion movement, we have emphasized education as the basis for both progress and equalization. So, the first legislation on on, uh, education was in the Justice Party government under the in 1921 where compulsory elementary education for boys and girls, that was where the equality started. So, as somebody who has believed very much both in personal life, in my family, in the movement, in education, I'm very happy always to attend such conferences and speak to students. In particular, institutions like Loyola College, uh, we have to pay a greater debt of gratitude. As in Madurai, I have pointed out many times, the early Christian missionaries who came and settled and set up educational institutions, medical institutions, hospitals, in places like Chennai and Madurai, have greatly contributed to the advancement of our society and we must remain grateful for that. Places like Loyola College have produced stellar alumni, exemplary leaders around the world. And that adds its own value, because it shows to the rest of the community that such progress is possible, that there is a path breaker ahead of you and has created a path that you can follow. Above all else, I think, uh, an event like today, where uh, relatively devout practicing Hindu like me, is invited as a chief guest to this institution run by a Christian organization, where outside we have the traditional uh, Samganand and Kungamud to greet us in and the wonderful job being done by the compere here who is of the Muslim faith. This I think is what distinguishes Tamil Nadu and gives us hope that we are... (laughs) So, I think for all these reasons I am very, very happy to be here today. At one time I used to be quite a technical person that was a while ago, so I'm not sure I'm the right guy to talk that much detail, but maybe just touch upon a few things related to the theme of the conference. As a couple of people pointed out, and in fact The uh, Economist magazine once had it on its cover, data is the new oil. The value of information uh, was always high. No, 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 no. I am happy to note my colleague, the local MLA. Okay, MLA is here. I greet him as well. But data went, at least in my lifetime, in two or three ways. Back in the early 80s when I was first a graduate student. We really didn't even have good data capture. Many of the measuring systems were in analog for temperature, for pressure, for movement, for counters and we didn't even have the digitizing capabilities to move that data from analog to digital and those were the innovations of that time. Once we started having sensors that would automatically capture data digitally and once the world became kind of internet and transaction based, Then, it was the scale and scope of databases that limited our uh, possibilities. Once we had almost infinite capacity of databases and memory, now the real limitation is analytics, because now you can capture and store almost infinite amounts of information, and many companies do. So, in these days of big data and deep tech, meaning you are capturing data at levels you have never thought of before, in places you have never thought of before, in granularity that you have never thought of before. And the notion of big data turning on its head the original constructs of statistics. When I was a PhD student, the basic construct of statistics was unless you had a theoretical basis to form a hypothesis and then you did the data analytics, show that the hypothesis was true or false. You really couldn't prove anything just by showing correlation. Correlation was not enough. You had to show causality. You had to show there was some theoretical reason to expect this outcome and if you got it then you had proven something and if you didn't get it you had proven something else. But now with big data we don't even have to have a hypothesis. We just throw all the numbers into the machine and see what it throws out and then see whether we don't really care about causality. Can we make money out of it? Can we improve performance and so forth? In some ways, that's used for evil, like in the big social uh, media uh, engines and so forth. But it can also be used for good. So, we are on a frontier that I haven't contemplated certainly in my 25-30 years as a professional. But I just want to talk about a few examples that I have seen in my life, the evolution, and how even today we use data and analytics in politics and government. As someone mentioned, my last job at Lehman Brothers was Head of Offshore Capital Markets. And at Lehman Brothers what we had created was at least still that unique in the world, it may be even today. In Mumbai, but not STPI, not back office, front office, financial services, structuring, pricing, securitization, syndicate, research, All of this which in other countries would be regulated, so if it was done here, had to be regulated also by the NYSE, by then regulator in the USA, uh, in the UK, FSA, Brand Service Authority, by the MAS, by the HKMA, and largely IIT and IIM graduates. Two years ago, the operation I ran was the single biggest recruiter of IIT and IIM graduates uh, in India, actually in the world because nobody else could export that many people with visas out. And we created this processing engine that greatly leveraged our capital markets franchise, particularly in the more complex products like structured credit, synthetic risk, exotic volatility, which was just impossible to do without that level of human talent in that quantity, and therefore it was not available in places like New York or Hong Kong. So we built what at the time was the pioneering center for such analytics in the world, taxpaying, front office, not STPI, regulated, sitting in Mumbai and servicing the world. That was cutting edge. Now almost everybody does something similar except they do it in other places, not mainly. In politics, uh, ever since I came and started thinking about how we capture what we do, the DMK was better than most people in capturing data. The level of analytics was not that great. Over my years in the IT wing, we improved it a lot. Uh, I don't want to go into detail. Because it may not be relevant and there's no upside to me to reveal all the secrets we have. <laughs> but uh, I will say only one thing. Whatever I think I know, about how voters behave and what happens. Every election, I find out, I actually don't know that much at all. The more data we collect, the more we analyze, the more we find that there are subtleties and patterns and movements that we can't even contemplate. I'll just give you one example. I ran for election in 2016 in the same Madurai Central constituency. Roughly 1,50,000 people came out to vote. I ran for election, my colleague, my uh, coalition partner, MP, ran for election in 2019, roughly 1, fifty thousand people came out to vote. I ran for election as MLA in 21, roughly 1,50,000 people came out to vote. Of course, the results varied a lot. I won by 6,000 votes the first time, the MP won by some 25,000 votes, and then the second time I won by 34,000 votes. But... The assumption when we see the same 150,000 is we think the same people are coming out to vote because it's about 60% of the voters. But once I started tracking at the individual voter level, I was astonished to find that even between 2019 and 2021, roughly 30,000 people had come in 21 who had not come in 19. Just think about what they said. It's a completely different election. That's the whole margin of victory, right there. So, the people who came in 2019, only about 1,15, 1,20,000 of them came back in 21. There were people who had come in 19 who didn't come in 21, because a few had passed away or moved out, but many of them were in the city and chose not to come. All the voter list is bad, they moved and we don't know. And about 13 or 14,000 people who were young, first-time voters have moved into, Chen- into Madurai County, it was a subtle question, but 17,000 people who were eligible voters in 2019, who had not come to vote in 2019, came out to vote in 2021. So every time you think the analytics shows you something, you realize there's greater and greater depth to this. And uh, you know, you, you just, you have to be in this perpetual quest, because it's never ending. In government also we use data, Though not as much as we do in politics and even politics not as much as we do in business. But I will just give two or three examples. One, we have uh, announced a data purity project that we have been undertaking in uh, the government of Tamil Nadu since last May when we took office. We have found many remarkable things. We have found tens of thousands of people who are continuing to receive old age or widow pensions after they have passed means they're listed in the civil register that they have passed away. And still the system has been paying them for years and years. We find that uh, when we gave the 4,000 rupees per car as the corona relief measure, which was brilliant, it helped our economy go through a much lower dip than others. But several lakh car holders who had never bought a racial product from a ration store before that 4,000 rupees, and had never bought a single product after that 4000 rupees, collected that 4000 rupees. So hundreds of crores were spent to people who otherwise had never felt the necessity to buy subsidized food. Either they exist or they don't exist, we don't know. But we start somewhere. I'm a member of the GST Council. I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing. <laughs> but when I go to these meetings, I find that uh, we have this wonderful source of data, there is no other system in the world than like the GST network. It captures every transaction everywhere in the country and yet almost no analytics happen. We get into all these discussions about philosophy, about theory, about, you know, policy, never ever backed by data. So, I kept raising that and what the union finance minister did because I kept saying it all the time, she made me a member of the standing committee on GST reforms and said, you go and figure out how we can use the data. So hopefully one of these days we'll do that. But why I'm saying all these examples is that in every walk of life, the more informed we are, the better decisions we can make. Our philosophy is our philosophy. Sometimes even our philosophy should be... Subject to change if the outcomes don't match. I was just having a discussion with the principal and rector before I came here. And I said, i talked to people of all different political philosophies, even the other extreme part of the spectrum compared to me. And while we mutually respect each other and so forth. The point I make is that I am not just a diehard adherent of my philosophy because my father was so, because my grandfather was so, because my great-grandfather was so, but because of the results it has produced, we have superb outcomes compared to the rest of the country in education, in health, uh, in social development. So if my philosophy had not produced these results, I should have started questioning whether this is the right philosophy or not. That's the whole point. It's not just that you should be, that's what rationalism is, that's what Kariya said. Think for yourself. Even if I say so, doesn't matter, does it make sense to you? So we follow this because we get outcomes. In that sense, uh, such progress is a constant. Life always keeps moving forward, the world keeps progressing, humanity keeps progressing. Sometimes we see bad consequences of data analytics, but there are so many good ones to come. And uh, on a day like today, I am reminded why I see myself as a lifelong student, because just reading that there are so many things that interest me, that I wish I had the time to follow. Anyway, there is a time for everything. I have... uh, greater responsibilities now than attending conferences. But you have the great luxury of attending a conference like this, meeting new people, learning new things, discussing any idea that comes to your head. So I hope you all take big advantage of that opportunity, that you will greatly enjoy yourselves and expand your mind and your thinking. I uh, congratulate the organizers for putting together such a Good conference with so many great panels and speakers and papers and I wish all of you uh, a very pleasant and fruitful couple of days. Thank you again for having me.